Welcome to the Aaron Novello Podcast. Are you looking to master the art of real estate sales? Do you want to level up your business and lifestyle? You are in the right place. Aaron and his guests share winning real estate sales strategies and techniques and show you how to win the inner game that leads to financial freedom. Get ready. Here is your host, top producing real estate agent and coach to some of the top agents in the U.S. and internationally, Aaron Novello. Drastically kind of- slowing down purchasing billions of dollars yeah. or hundreds of billions of dollars of A debt. month. Every month with with printed money. If there's too many dollars chasing the same goods and services, the only kind of way to tamp that down is to limit people's access to dollars, right? I was reading an article about two weeks ago that basically said to take out a mortgage today, it's almost 40% higher than it was a year ago that day. People have to be prepared and realistic. If someone's not realistic in their their search, then we've got to be realistic with them and and letting them know. Their approach is potentially going to be futile in in this market. Welcome back, Novello Nation, to another episode of the Aaron Novello Podcast. We have with us some awesome human beings, absolute rock stars in the lending game uh, here locally, where we do business. They're our lender of choice. They are branch partners, brothers, right? And uh, also responsible for 370 plus mortgages a year, $125 million of money lent the one and only dynamic duo, Mr. Danny and Ari Tokar. Really appreciate you guys taking the time to be with me here today. Thanks, Aaron. Thank appreciate you having, Thanks us. For having us. Yeah, my pleasure. So, you know, I think that this is on people's minds right now, and that's why I wanted to have us on uh, and, and having this conversation together because, you know, the game has uh, changed pretty quickly. And we've seen interest rates kind of rise dramatically in a very short period of time. So perhaps before we get to that, Peace, talk to us a little bit about your guys' evolution, like how you came to mortgages and how you came to, you know, being branch partners uh, with your current, you know, organization, Benchmark Mortgage. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I'll start. And uh, again, thanks again for having us on. So um, when I started in the mortgage world, it was 2013. Um, I was in the process of buying my home at that time. And um some things that happened at the end of the process, I was buying a condo, some things that happened at the end of the process that caught me by surprise. Um, and at the time, my loan officer, you know, I, I had inquired it within, you know, about potentially coming into the business and learning how to how to do mortgages and kind of teach people the way um, and, and kind of take the surprise element out of the end of, of the process. You know, so I, I came in the business in 2013. I worked as a production partner under uh, my mentor. Um for close to seven or eight years during that time, you know, for the first year I was a production partner. Um, I set up all of their loans and, and another loan officer's loans, took, you know, and, and learned the business really intricately, um, took files from start to finish and, and really just, you know, worked on the qualification end of things. Um, didn't really handle too much of the, the consumer uh, conversation end of things, but really took the time to become a student of the game and, and learn what I was doing, learn how to, you know, there there's, 9,000 different ways to do mortgages. So really learn how to become an, an expert and, and the guy and work within the guidelines to be able to leverage different ways to do loans. Um, after my first year, I decided to become a loan officer. And I very quickly, um, with the knowledge that I've gained over that previous year, uh, very quickly um, kind of blew up for lack of better words. Um, I think I did about $34.5 million of volume my first year producing. Um, and at that time, I, I, I don't 
consider, I, I wouldn't have considered myself an expert. It was more so just from the, you know, the hard work that I put in um, and, and, and the effort that I was putting out there on the street to try to go and earn opportunities. Um, at that point, you know, I started to grow my team. Um, Ari, I believe, was my second or third hire. Um, I really needed someone that, I, that I've known for a long time and I can trust, you know, in, intricately um, to, to be able to help, you know, take us to that next level. And we quickly, you know, grew our volume from 70 million, then 100 plus, you know, year on, year on. So the third year in of us originating, we we're doing about 100 million in volume at that point. Um, we weren't officially partners or anything like that, although we did work together and work all on the same pipeline. And we kind of worked under the same umbrella. But, you know, we weren't, uh, you know, we were just kind of a team within a, in a branch at that point. Um, it wasn't until about two, two years ago, a little bit over two years ago, um, right before COVID started, that we had an opportunity with Benchmark to really grow their local market. You know, they've been around for almost 30 years at the po- at that point, um, not been in the Florida market. Um, you know, we had a couple mutual connections within the organization that we were able to connect with and and really sit down and just, you know, kind of hear what they were about and how they operated. Um, and it really struck a chord with us both. And, um, you know, it was an opportunity in our career where um, we were able to come kind of take, take the... Uh, what we have done for the previous, I think at that time it was four or five years together. But for me, uh, I'm sorry, three or four years together. And, and for me, it was like six or seven, you know, six years in the business in total. It really gave me the opportunity to, you know, kind of grow something beyond my business or my, my origination business and kind of run a branch and be able to help others do what I was able to accomplish in my first, you know, five, six, seven years of my career. Um you know, together we, um, you know, really make a great team. I mean, a lot of there, there's a lot of things that both of us do well, and you know, we balance each other very well in the sense of, um, you know, he he really handles a lot of the operation stuff. Yeah, I handle a lot of the production stuff. Um, you know, and we both kind of know each side of the business, um, but it, it's really just where our brains go and what we really enjoy doing together um, and separately, for that matter. Um, you know, being with Benchmark, it's it's really been. Um, not just being originators, you know, we're, we're running a business as well. And we have other loan officers and other um, employees that we're responsible for beyond us. So it's really been awesome. It's been a great challenge. We've been loving every minute of it. And, uh, you know, are you want anything you want to add on to there? It, yeah, just, you know, it, like Danny said, from from the standpoint of benchmark gave us a, a chance to kind of like spread our wings a little bit and do more than just uh, just originate. And, and beyond that, that's certainly come. We've been, you know, our focus has been equally on continuing to grow and refine our own production um, and, and, and how we serve our partners, but also to be able to, to you know, bring some other people into the business. And, 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 you know, there's not a lot of people out there in the mortgage space that will take a chance on someone without experience. Um, it's a, and it's something that, you know, we, Danny and I both recognize that we both got an opportunity in this business at some point because someone took a chance on us without that experience. And, you know, we really like, we, we want to pay that forward. So it hasn't, um, you know, we've had the opportunity to, to bring some people on and really kind of like coach them and mentor them and bring them through our system, hopefully have them learn from our experiences and not necessarily, you know, uh, go through all the, uh, the pain that we went through at times and trying to figure it out because we figured some stuff out over the years. And, uh, and, and like I said, hopefully, uh, uh, you know, grow some grow some production and some some great partners and, and you know, outside of just uh, Danny and I. That's awesome. Yeah. And people will definitely benefit, you know, from being in your guys proximity. And that's cool that, you know, from kind of a internal standpoint that your goal and objective is to help others. Now, I'm curious, 
uh, Danny, because as because I know it sounds like Ari's been doing this for a little bit less than you. Again, a good amount of time, but a little bit less time. So talk a little bit about the environment in the marketplace and with interest rates when you first got started. So like what was happening at that slice in time in the market? Yeah, so when I, my, my first few loans that I originated, uh, rates were right around uh, four seven four eight, just creeping up up there, um, and you know, quickly fell after that. I had a long period of rates being somewhere hovering around, you know, in a best case scenario, two point six, and a, you know, to about three and a quarter, three three for a very long period of time, um, you know. I would tell you uh, right around, right before COVID, rates started to creep back up. Um, they had hit that high fours, low fives range, and and everybody in the world was saying, "Okay, here it is. This is way overdue. Rates are going to start going back up." And and you know the the days of low rates are are gone. Um, and then obviously COVID happened. The world shut down. Um, you know, life changed. You know, domestically and internationally, basically overnight things kind of just came to a screeching halt for a while. Um, not that long of a while, but long enough for it to be concerning. Um, there were some shifts in the financial market that caused our government to step in and basically, for lack of better words, write a blank check for mortgage-backed securities, um, you know, which really drove rates down, drove it down fast, and, and um, created an extraordinarily volatile uh, environment for quite a while. Um, but Ultimately, the end game was rates fell and they fell to a point where they, you know, they were they had hit the lowest level in, in history um, or very, very, very close to it. Um, they stayed low for quite a while. The, the, the Fed kept um, purchasing, you know, unlimited amounts of bonds for a long, long time. Is it? Yeah. And I'm curious oh. because I know you 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 say that quickly. And I'm also aware that some people might not understand what we're talking about. So yeah. why is it that when mortgage backed securities are purchased, that rates, at, you know, at basically an unlimited quantity, that that'll keep rates low? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the easy answer for that is that, you know, you basically have an unlimited buyer of your product. So, you know, you're, you're creating a, a situation where um, if, the, if the government's not just buying everything, then you have a private market for these bonds. And people compete, you know, they're going to compete for the cost of the bonds. But the government's just out there just saying, we're going to keep buying them, buying them, buying them, buying them, buying them. So, a lot of the private market went away or, or scaled back, and you know the government just just literally stroked the blank check, um, which ultimately drove the value of these bonds down. Um, um, oh, sorry, up. You know, it's it's an inverse chart. Sorry, um, but w what happens is, um, you know, when the government comes out and says, "Hey, we're not going to continue to purchase these or purchase these at the levels that we have been." All of a sudden, you're waiting on private money to come back in and regulate that market and figure out, find where the value, or not the value, but where the uh, the cost that they're willing to pay for that coupon is. So, um, you know, we've had over the last ooh, six months, five months, like almost a thousand, close 900 to a thousand basis points sell off in bonds um, because there's no, um, nobody there just. Uh, unlimitedly buying them for the value that they're putting them out. Are you, I see you want to say something. There. Well, so yeah. So what started as the government taking action because they needed to, to provide liquidity to the market, because had they not stepped in and said, yes, we're going to purchase mortgage-backed securities, there would literally be no market for mortgage-backed securities, which means no matter what happens, unless a bank was lending their own money, you know, portfolio lending, 
like mortgages would have stopped. So the Fed came in and provided liquidity to the market. The Fed also kept, as Danny described, almost unlimited liquidity in the market for nearly two years. So what was, you know, hey, let me step in and save, ultimately wound up contributing greatly to a a little bit of a free-for-all in the mortgage market. And also that is part of what caused and contributed to the run-up in the real estate market, right? Super cheap money, um, super high demand. And ultimately, in a time that still was was encased with with uh, economic uncertainty throughout for many people, you know, the beginning of COVID, once the initial craziness of all of the you know unemployment claims and layoffs and that sort of stuff happened, and then slowly clawed back to get us to where we're at right now. Ultimately, you look back six months when when things started to take a turn, and what we experienced was an environment where there was. No, there was no way out other than what's what we're experiencing right now. Rates were kept at an artificially low level for such a long time that the only way out was kind of the let's rip the Band-Aid off approach. And what happened was the Fed announced not only that and, and this this doesn't take into account any of the other external factors like wars or anything like that that contributed. Right. But. The Fed basically said, we're going to stop buying. We're going to taper our buying of mortgage-backed securities, which is going to, in theory, bring the private market more into play, which the private market is going to have a higher expectation of returns, which means rates are going to be higher because the the, the return on that investment has to be higher. And that happened in conjunction with major supply change slowdowns, war war in Europe, all these things, you know, inflation that all of a sudden hit six, seven, eight percent month after month after month. And that's where we're at right now. Part of the reason yeah. that not only have rates run up very quickly over the last three, four, five months, and they have, they're over two percent in almost every metric you want to look at, right? But part of the reason it's creating a little bit more pain for borrowers um, is that the the uh, the people that do purchase, the companies that purchase the mortgage-backed securities are being very, very cautious right now um, because what they want to avoid is lending money at higher interest rates and then have the risk of, or there is the risk of economic, uh, let's say, recession that is going to then cause rates to drop again, which is going to cause another mass refinance boom which is going to make all these people that are lending money at higher rates right now lose money because they got refinanced out of those loans. So what you're seeing is this combination of factors when not only are rates increasing, but rates are kind of like, again, I use the term artificial because it seems like it should be a little different, but we're making up for past, you know, discretions of, you know, you know, past, you know, mistakes, if you will. So now even at the higher rates, it's costing borrowers more money to get those rates because the banks want the insurance that even if this thing gets refinanced in six months, nine months, 12 months, whatever it is, that they're collecting a little more upfront to lessen the blow. So it's a very weird time. It's very volatile. And it's, uh, um, you know, it's, it's not, it's not everyone's favorite time to be, you know, trying to figure out what, you know, are the rates going to go up or down or whether I should buy right now or whatever, because it's, it's complicated and it's, we, we, you know, rates are as high as they've been since 2009 so we've got a 13-year run of low interest rates, many times historically low through that point. It is just new. There's an entire generation of home buyers that have never experienced rates in the fives. Historically speaking, rates in the fives, great interest rate. 
Right now, rates in the five, sticker shocks for a lot of people. But as that normalizes, the sticker shock goes away, the market normalizes, and then that's just, hey, if, if that's the new normal, that's the new normal. And it'll just take a few more months for people to like really kind of come to grips with that. Yeah, that's awesome. I think you did a really, both of you did a really good job kind of explaining that. I was taking notes. So, you know, one is this kind of euphemism. It's a very interesting word to use the word taper because it sounds like it's like, oh, it's a little taper that's quiet versus like, <laughs> oh, we are stopping buying them, right? Which is yeah. like, we're done. <laughs> so it's an we're interesting kind of- We're drastically slowing down purchasing billions of dollars yeah. or hundreds of billions of dollars of a month every month with, every print, month. with printed money. Money yeah, that we're putting like so, in order to do so. Yeah, so I love that choice. A little scarier like, than taper. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting that you wrote that you mentioned was um, you know inflation and the reading being eight percent. What's very interesting is I know that that number doesn't include housing or energy. So that's pretty fascinating because if we did include housing and our energy, the question is, would it be eight percent? And I would propose it would be much higher than that, right? So, so that's kind of interesting. And then the other thing that's interesting is just kind of limiting people's access to money, right? Because if there's too many dollars chasing the same goods and services, the only kind of way to tamp that down is to limit people's access to dollars, right? Which is kind of what's taking place. So I guess talk a little bit about how much that's impacted because my hallucination is, is you had a bunch of buyers that were pre-approved 60 days ago and then we look at their pre-approvals and we're like, uh, hey, Ari, sorry, brother, you are no longer approved for that amount. We got to look for homes that are $100,000 less. So talk a little bit about like that and how that's like shaking out. Yeah, so, so there's definitely the, the increase over the last six months has definitely, um, you know, even the last two months um, has definitely lowered people's qualifications in combination, in combination with increasing the cost at the value, like if it doesn't affect their qualification, if they're well qualified and they still want to buy that same house, it is now more expensive. Um, I was reading an article about two weeks ago that basically said to take out a mortgage today, it's almost 40% higher than it was a year ago that day. Um, and, I, and it was right at the end of April that I read that. And the reality is, is that, you know, if you think about that, it's like, you know, to buy that house last year, it was for, for speaking about the mortgage and, you know, just the principal and interest, it's now 40% higher than it was a year ago. Then you factor in some other elements like um, what we've experienced in the insurance market here in Florida. And that's really, you know, driving people's prices up. And then ultimately, like you said, affects their qualification. So one thing that's super important is that, you know, making sure that, you know, as, as a realtor or a client, you're, you're always out there staying in touch with your, your lender and whoever's helping you buy a property to make sure you have up-to-date information Make sure that you know what the market is right now. So that way there's no surprises for you. You know, um, if you were shopping two months ago and now rates are half a point higher and, you know, you need to know what that looks like on paper, whether you qualify or not. Um, with that said, um, you know, the the banks are not increasing the, the guidelines for what they allow people to qualify for. So you are seeing people that are at the brink, you know, if they're at the highest debt to income ratio that they're allowed to be at that it might push them over, which then would require them to lower, per, you know, lower their purchase price, maybe pivot from looking at a condo that has an HOA with, you know, a higher HOA to something that's more of a townhouse or a single family without an HOA, you know, keeping in mind the insurance and tax variables. Um, but, but either way, um, it is definitely hurt from a qualification standpoint and definitely slowed down the market. You know, your, your pool of buyers 
or that $600,000 house has just been reduced over the last couple months because of the rate increase from a qualification standpoint. So for every, you know, if you had 10 buyers that qualify for that house two months ago, you might have eight or seven that qualify for that house now. So um, that is where, where you're starting to see it. And I, and I think, um, you know, Aaron, you may be able to help me or, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're starting to see that a little bit on the, on the, um, you know, amount of offers per property, maybe not days on market, but the amount of offers on property, um, you know, starting to be limited as, you know, in that last really 30 days, you know, so, so much, um, as far as dollars and cents wise are, you want to talk about just more specifically percentages on how, you know, going up percents, what that does to your qualification. Yeah. So like I, you know, in, in preparation for our call today, I said, let's look at a typical loan amount, you know, a $500,000 mortgage, right. Which in South Florida is not an unreasonable, uh, mortgage amount. Right. And so like going from looking over the last, uh, you know, say go back six months and let's just say we're looking at a rate of three and a half versus five and a half. Well, if you're talking about dollars and cents for a borrower, it's a difference of almost $600 per month in just principal and interest. So like there's a tangible element to that, you know, you, you take a, a principal and interest payment that goes from 2245 to 2839 with a 2% increase in interest rate, right? Then to what Danny was saying too, well, you know, part of what we do is our process is it's not just what do you qualify for, you know, but there's a lot more questions that go into it. And what do you, what can you afford is the most important, is one of the most important ones there. There's a big difference between, for some people, what can you afford and what can you qualify for? And under normal markets, if you have a client that says, well, you know, my comfort level, I can afford $2,500 a month. And we say, okay, well, perfect. You can qualify for $3,500 a month. So you're in great shape because you're going to be able to purchase something that you can afford and it's well within the parameters of what you qualify for. In, in, in the market over the last couple of years, there have been times where some clients that that, that relationship is a little bit, you know, inverse. Someone might want $2,500 per month, but they might only qualify for $2,200. And then it's like, okay, well, what changes? Because there's only a couple of things that can change. It's either, uh, it, it's either change your search parameters, find more income, which could mean a co-borrower, could mean a couple of different things, get rid of some debt. There's different ways that you can, you know, help someone qualify for more. But again, that balance between afford and qualify are kind of important. So if you're talking about a borrower that is, let's just say, very well qualified and isn't going to have an issue qualifying for the payment, it is then just a question of it's going to cost you more for that same house at the same interest rate, right? On the flip side, if you're talking about the borrower, what Danny alluded to, someone that's pretty close to maxed out on their qualification, right? They might have been in a four or $500,000 price range and all of a sudden, their maximum might be three to $400,000. $600 a month in payment is the equivalent of, by most estimations, somewhere between $100,000 and $120,000 in purchase price, right? So if someone was qualified for, let's say, five fifty, dollars now all of a sudden they might be qualified for four fifty, dollars with the exact same parameters. At the same time, prices are going up, and that's where you're seeing – you know, that's where you're seeing those challenging conversations with their, with your clients and with our partners too in saying, okay, we've got to change 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 gears here a little bit, right? Like the 550 house that you wanted, well, one, you might not be able to qualify for it anymore. So like, let's change gears and how, how do we how do we either get you into that house or how do we change your search parameters so you can get into a house because it's possible that the less expensive house 
might continue to appreciate in value too. And someone winds up priced out of that as well if they don't uh, if they don't change gears. And we do take a very proactive approach in our in, in our you know conversations with our clients. Um, you know, Aaron, you said it. We've got buyers that are kind of stacked up on the sidelines, like waiting for inventory or waiting to find the perfect spot. And you know, we could we have a hundred people right now that would want to buy a house if you walk in and pick it off the shelf and do it, they'd be, they'd be ready. Right. Um, but the reality is that the market isn't that the inventory isn't there for that yet. It's starting to tick up. I think we're starting to see probably this last month, the first time where you've got some like positive inventory movement month over month. But, uh, but yeah, no, we're, we're, I mean, e- even our pre-approved buyers, if they're actively shopping, we're, we're in communication with them at least once a week, uh, to, to get a feel for where they're at and what they're doing and, and, you know, how we might be able to help. And, you know, Sometimes you listen, some you, we, we've seen it. You've seen people drop out of the market. You've seen people, uh, you know, go, take a break, have to renew a lease or whatever it is, um, you know, but we're doing everything we can to uh, to help uh, to help them, you know, kind of achieve achieve that goal of uh, purchasing a home and to, uh, you know, I don't want to say get creative in doing it, but, you know, do everything that we can to help strengthen and offer to compete in a super duper competitive market, right? Yeah. Hey, and creativity is not a bad word, bro. It's good. So what I'm aware of is, as I'm taking notes as we're speaking, and yes, what I've seen is I think um, inventory went up by 5%. It's the first time that's happened in like the last 12 months in this geographic area, which would make sense as demand you know, begins to soften for the reasons we're describing. I think it's also interesting for everybody that's out there listening that uh, you know the change in rates is the equivalent of a $600 a month change in payment swing, and that's the equivalent of $100,000 to $120,000 in purchasing power. And that's pretty interesting. Also, this concept that everything on the market has become more expensive without the prices changing because the cost of money is more. And that's an interesting observation and awareness. And then when you said afford versus qualify, like that's interesting to me because I'm imagining, right, that over the last 24 months, hadn't really had to have too many of those types of conversations. I know you guys are the type of folks that you always do because you look out for people's best interest. At the same time, I'm aware you hadn't, haven't had to be, you know, uh, really kind of hawks as far as that is concerned and i'm imagining that now this is why it's so important that if you do engage you know with someone if you are interested in purchasing that they would have that conversation with you because i know it's a difficult one it's an uncomfortable one to tell somebody like you know I'm, i'm aware that when we're accustomed to getting whatever we want we want it right now they're like hey you're gonna have to wait or hey like this is not it's not going to look exactly the way you wanted we're going to have to maybe do something different or do a stepping stone and like the professionals have to have the intestinal fortitude to have those types of conversations is that right yeah it's it's never easy to have a conversation with someone telling them something they don't want to hear um with you know with that said it's important you know our our job is to educate people and provide them value in, in our expertise and be able to like you know, help lead them to where they want to go. And that doesn't always work today. Um, but if you put, you know, if, if you got a bunch of great people that put their heads together, we can get there. So, um, you know, sometimes you have to have that unfortunate conversation. And at the end of the day, listen, you know, when I went to buy my first house, I thought I was going to get this single family. And my realtor at the time um, was showing me these $300,000 houses in, in uh, Coral Springs, and I could afford 170 grand, you know, and, and, and ultimately, like, I had to have like a, a real, like, you know, come to earth moment, like, okay, as much as I want to move into that beautiful home in Coral Springs, like I can afford 170 grand. And you know what, my next home that I bought after that is the beautiful home that I wanted, you know, 
And it's just like, I experienced that myself. And I think that kind of gives me some insight on, you know, some of these first time home buyers that we're working with, um, you know, going through it themselves, but it, it's always important. And that's part of like, what Ari's saying is like, not, not just about what people qualify, what can you afford? It's, it's about giving people a plan for what it's, what works for them. So, and, and sometimes that's today. And like Ari said, sometimes that means they got to resign a lease and that's next year or six months down the road. But regardless of it, of what it is, you know, we're going to do that. Um, while, while I was talking real quick, um, I was able to pull up some data just to go back to the rate conversation real quick. Um, so as I told you, like right before COVID rates started to spike up a little bit and then COVID happened. So I was just able to pull this information from the New York Fed's um, database that, you know, before, right before COVID, um, you know, for the year, year and a half, couple of years before COVID, the Fed was buying about between 20 and 25 billion with a B in mortgage-backed securities a month um, up until about February of 2018. In February 2018, they reduced those purchases anywhere between, you know, on the lower end, you know, 5 billion and the higher end, 12 billion. But for the next six months, they started reducing those purchases to all the way down to about five and a, five and a half billion. That was back towards September of 2018. Then here's where it gets interesting on our side. After that, it was 300 million, 300 million, 300 million, 300 million, month after month after month after month. Well, what started happening is rates started going up, started going up, started going up. And then we got to COVID. As soon as COVID hit, um, Fed comes out and says, hey, we're going to start buying mortgage-backed securities, right? Already said to stabilize the market and, and provide liquidity to all the places that needed it. And that two, two to 300 million immediately from one month to the next jumped up to 3 billion plus from there on out. And then 3 billion turned into 6 billion, turned into 9 billion, all the way up to June of 2020, they were purchasing $96 billion of mortgage-backed securities per month, then 100, then 110, and then 111. So you see that co- that was what was driving your rates down. So just from December to January, they, they decreased the purchases of, of mortgage-backed securities by 75% overnight. Um, and that's kind of what's been happening. Um, right now, um, it's at about 34, 34 bil- billion a month. So we're still at like, you know, back to pre-pre-COVID levels, but not quite so much what you've seen the last 12 months, the last 18 months since COVID started. That's interesting. And based on what you're sharing with me, then my understanding is just as they back those, they back the purchases down, then it goes to, um, you know, kind of the open market and the open market investors want to be compensated more for risk. They're not just going to blindly buy everything. So right. if they want to be more compensated for risk, then there has to be a higher rate of return. Well, Hence, when you have a yeah, when you have a, a an investor that wants to uh, you know that wants the rate of return, and they're investing their own money, or they're investing their shareholders' money, or whatever you know whatever it is, they they have higher expectations than when the government is literally just printing money for the sole purpose of buying mortgage-backed securities and has really no expectation of return on investment, figuring at some point, we'll clear out our balance sheet, we'll sell these loans, but it's not a, it's not an investment. It was a liquidity play on the government side, in fairness, to keep the mortgage industry, mortgage, you know, mortgage market moving. But yes, when, when there is an expectation in return from the Wall Street side of things, it's higher than what the government stepped in and, and, and did. Yeah, I think that's wild. I think I read somewhere if they would have kept up at that pace that 
the government would have essentially owned like 60 something, 70% of all homes in the United States based on owning the, you know, the kind of mortgages sort of thing. So, okay. So then here's my question to you guys is like moving forward. We see all of these things happening. Clearly you guys understand it very well. You, you understand the way the machine works very well. So with moving forward, nobody has a crystal ball, myself included at the same time, having seen what we've seen, knowing that inflation is still at you know a very high rate, what's the probability that moving forward we'll continue to see kind of movement in an upward trajectory as far as rates are concerned? I mean, I think ultimately, I don't think we've hit the top. I mean, it all depends on what you're reading and what, where you're reading it and that kind of stuff. But I mean, my, this is my personal opinion. You know, we've had such a sharp increase so fast that I think we will see a period of consolidation. Now, how long that period is, I don't know. And I, that's where, you know, our crystal ball would be great. It's the, you know, billion dollar question there. But the reality is I do think you're going to see a stretch that rates are going to bounce in this range of where they're at right now and not continue to exponentially go up. With that said, every time a set of inflation numbers comes out um, and it's higher than we expect, you know, or or not than expected or whatever, you know, as long as it's still high, there's still the likelihood that they could continue to push this um, narrative and, and continue to artificially, you know, hey, we're going to raise the, the Fed rate another 50 basis points. Now, another 75 basis points. Now, that doesn't have a direct correlation on interest rates. And I'll let Ari explain that a little bit. But the reality is, is that it's a perception and then people hear it and then, the, you know, the media takes it and then it drives fear in, in the market where, you know, the, the, the prime rate that the Fed sets is not a direct correlation on what your rate is um, that you're getting. That, that is driven by the, the buying and the selling of mortgage-backed securities. So, um, like I said, I do believe that we're still going to see them go up. I mean, I've heard from various places that, you know, maybe we get up to the 8 9% range. Um, I, I do also agree with what Ari was saying earlier, that at some point, if the economic out, outlook in our country doesn't change, we are at some point going to hit a recession. And then when that happens, you know, they will artificially drive them back down. So I think that's where the really the next few weeks, months really are going to be important to, to see. Do we get more private money in there or does everybody kind of sit on the sidelines and wait to see what happens with our economy? And and is the Fed going to come and step back in and give it to them cheaper? So unfortunately, we have like, you know, going on almost 20 years of, you know, of questionable monetary and fiscal policy, you know, that is not easy to like just unravel in a day and say, okay, we're going to get it back to normal. Right. Because like, like I said, we have a generation of borrowers, a generation of, of citizens, you know, of U S residents that like are just used to things working in a certain way. And it, it, it is, it's challenging to just hit the reset button, but there is, you know, there is an element or some elements of our system where like the reset button is kind of what's needed. And at whatever point when it, you know, at ever, whatever point when it, um, you know, when it's hit or an aspect of it is hit, you get this kind of like cause and effect reaction. And that's what causes volatility. And, and again, I do believe we will get stability to the market, um, e even if that means a sustained increase in interest rates, a slow and sustained increase in interest rates is still stability. What we've experienced over the last five to six months is a very, very rapid increase in interest rates, and there's nothing stable about it. So it's volatile on a day-to-day -day basis, and it's volatile on a long-term basis because we've 
I don't think we've ever seen, certainly not in our lifetime or time in the business, when rates have gone from three to five and a half or, you know, three and a half to 5.75 or whatever, when we've seen this much movement this quickly. Um, and that is kind of the inherently like in, in unstable element to it. But, you know, if, if we go back and we go back to say 2019, you know, like the, the, the projections, the projections were that rates were going to probably increase like about, about a percent over the course of the year. Like is a percent a lot? Yeah, but a percent over 12 months when it kind of follows a slow and steady approach isn't uh, isn't earth shattering. What we're experiencing now for many people is earth shattering. And that's the difference is because not to say no one predicted it or no one expected it, but I can tell you not everyone did. And, um, and or, or as fast as it happened. Right. It's that's people in the mortgage industry. That's people in the real estate industry. That's certainly borrowers. Um, and that is, uh, you know, and, and at the same time, that's also our, our government as well, who, like I said, planned on tapering, going back to that word, but not necessarily tapering in conjunction with a war and major supply chain issues and inflation and in, a, and in an environment where rates were going to increase so quickly and tapering was going to exacerbate that problem. Yes, 100%. So I wrote down a couple things like as we're as you guys were talking is like the volatility is what creates a change in consumer sentiment. I mean, that would be my kind of uh, my input on that, right? <laughs> so where people start to think like, hey, like what's going on? And it causes them to kind of pull back a little bit. And then to your point, you know, I think the rates have gone up faster than they have in the last 30 years, like the speed with which they went up, um, you know, in a short amount of time. So here's the question then, is if somebody's a buyer out there and they want to purchase, right? Uh, in an environment that we're in right now, I think home ownership is a good idea, right? And if you have a compelling reason to purchase, you should. For most people, it's the primary vehicle for wealth accumulation. The majority of Americans have the majority of the net worth tied up into their house. So it's a mechanism for acquiring that. So I guess my question to you guys would be is as buyers in the marketplace, what would be like your blueprint? What would be your formula? Obviously first call you, Right. But number two, like, what's the blueprint? Like, what do you think people have to be prepared for? Not only psychologically, but practically. I, one of the things that we do is we, we have a we, we do a lot of work up front. Right. We do work up. We do a lot of work up front to make sure that the person that we're, you know, saying, Aaron, your client is pre-approved and they're ready to buy a house to make sure that their loan doesn't fall apart. Right. So we, we, we do our research on that side of things too, but we also, we really do. We take time to go over their options, to go over their parameters, to help them understand what A looks like, B looks like, C looks like, and, and, and make sure that no one is wasting their time. I think your, your question, I wrote it down when you said it is that, you know, the compelling reason to purchase when someone says, is it a good time to buy real estate? I always say, it doesn't matter what the market is. It is, it's a personal question. It's not a macro question, it's a micro question, right? Like, what are your goals? What are your needs? What is your comfort level? What is your, you know, uh, what is your uh, level of risk tolerance or aversion? And let's sit down and figure that together. And then I think in today's market, if we get through that checklist and we have the client that is ready to purchase, right? Then it's a question of, okay, here's what you have to prepare yourself to. For. You have, you, you know, and, and this is where we work together with our partners too, because it makes sense. You've got to be decisive. You've got to be aggressive. You've got to be, you know, you, you, you've got to put your best foot forward. Um, and at the end of the day, um, you have to be a little bit uh, kind of like 
steely, right? Like if you, you've got to, you, you, you got to be willing or, or understand that you might deal with some disappointment in this market because there's a dozen other people that feel exactly the same way that you do that are going to, that are going to make an offer in that same house that you love. And yeah. there's a time, you know, and it's so funny because I go back to like, say two, two and a half years ago. Right. And if a client said, what do I have to do to get this house? My, my answer would be, listen, I'm not, you know, I'm not the real estate professional, but I'm like, well, pay them what they're asking for. it. Like you'll probably get it. 90%. You're going to get it. Right. And, and, and that notion right now of just give them, give them full price is, is a skewed notion right now. So it yeah, can't so- Ever. but there's a you know people have to be prepared and realistic if someone's not realistic in their in, in their search then we've got to be realistic with them and letting them know that their their approach is potentially going to be futile in this in this market yeah and just to, just to tie in a little bit to what are you saying um you know about preparing them you know we know what's happening in the market that we might experience that there might be an appraisal gap or they might have to waive the appraisal contingency. Um, so it's our job up front when they're going to make an offer to call you, Aaron, and say, hey, Aaron, you know, do you think that there's going to be any appraisal issues on this house? If so, roughly, how, how much do you think it's going to come in and appraise at? And then what that allows us to do on the front end of the process is prepare the customer. If we know that they're buying a $600,000 house at the last place in the neighborhood closed at five fifty, dollars and there's nothing supporting above five fifty, dollars it's important that we understand that and, and educate the customer up front so they know if the property were to come in at 550, well, what does that look like on paper? Well, maybe that customer's putting 20% down and now they can put 10% down and it doesn't change things too dramatically. Maybe they've got the extra cash to come out of pocket and, and just pay the difference. But it's important that they know that before they're making the offer, because once they make the offer, go under contract, pay for an inspection, pay for an appraisal. Well, now they've already spent time, which is money, and they've spent money, which is money. And they might come to a result that's unfavorable, which then tarnishes you, tarnishes us, and tarnishes everybody in between because we could have educated them up front and given them the ability to understand that. So that's part of like what goes into our process up front with our clients and our agents to make sure that the customer is prepared, no matter how many properties they've bought in their life, that they're prepared for this market environment, no matter what comes at them. Yeah, I love that. So I wrote down a few things. One is a realistic time horizon. It is not normal that you own a property for one or two years and sell it and make money. So you should have a realistic time horizon that you may have to hold on to it for seven to 10 years, recognizing that a house is a place to live first and foremost. And then, you know, if you get ancillary benefits from a financial perspective, cool. The second thing I wrote down is you have to have a compelling reason, like a very specific compelling reason to be in this market, because what I'm aware of is to your point is you're going to have to deal with friction. And in order to deal with friction, you have to have a compelling, motivated reason, right? Otherwise, you might not be willing to do that. Two is you got to come guns blazing, right? Uh, particularly if you're trying to make offers then that affordable range in our marketplace, that's between like 300 and 500. There's no real kind of negotiating. You got to make very aggressive offers with very aggressive terms and conditions. You're not entitled to a counter. Don't imagine that you are, right? So you got to put your best foot forward right out of the gate. And then three, really being upfront with expectations, not only on your end, as far as what the money's going to look like and payments and all that other stuff, but also on our end, you know, as agents, educating them on, okay, here's realistically what you can expect. So that way there's no surprises kind of moving forward. Now, what I'm also taking from this conversation is for those people out there that are thinking about selling, 
you know, what I'm aware of is, is that there's two emotions that dominate any market. One is greed and the other one's fear. And what I've personally seen in the marketplace is that first one uh, come roaring and raging, right, uh, over the last 12 months. And I think consumers, it takes them a while. Last time, because I was selling real estate in 2008 and nine, and it took about 12 months for sellers to recognize like, oh, this is like a different environment. And what I'm aware of is, is like that affordable price point. I'm not seeing it there as much, but I am seeing it in the higher ones where you're not getting 10 or 12 offers, you're getting one or two. And you're not seeing as aggressive terms and conditions. So the other thing I'm kind of sensing from you guys that if people have been sitting on the fence, like, oh, I'm going to wait and see what happens, that if they want to sell, they should probably do that. Is that right? Listen, as long as they've got a plan, right? And that's the key. And that's that's what goes in. And yeah, because they are sitting on a, a ton of equity. And if they've bought any time with them, you know, really since 2000 and what, 10, yep. you know, they're sitting on a, a huge, huge stack of equity that they can then turn around and leverage into one of many things. Um, whether that's another primary, a primary with an investment or a second home attached to that, um, not physically attached, but, uh, you know, in general, um, or just be able to help change their change their financial outlook. Um, listen, I always I'm a big believer. It's always a good time to buy or sell when you're renting. You know, you're paying 100 percent interest rate. You know, you're paying somebody else's mortgage. So if you know you've got someone sitting on a high high equity position, there's a lot of different things that they can do with that. And, and, and I think Aaron, you were talking about the you know the affordable range, right? Which you know we know that range always moves, but. You know, Danny and I, one of the things that we kind of getting back to like our passion for helping people. Right. And we've always kind of felt that like our core of our business is going to be working with the clients and working in the price range for the homes that people need, not necessarily the homes that people want. Right. And so what you just described is exactly that. Like there's there's still unrelenting demand for the homes that people need. Right. Which is what keeps the. I don't want to say the bottom part of the market, but the you know the, the lower price part of the market, regardless of what that is, very very strong because there's always someone looking for their first house. There's always someone looking for the step up as the family grows. There's always someone moving to the area, graduated school, moving back to where they can you know and and, and looking for that, that that opportunity. Where you t- tend to see the market soften a little bit first, and I think this has been e- even back in 2018 and 2019 when rates started to increase a little bit, is that the I want that big house side of the market, but I don't need that big house side of the market. Because if someone has a house that serves their family, they just want something a little bigger and nicer, it becomes a little bit more, it's, it's more disposable income, right? So that's where you start to see it soften first. I think that's where we're seeing it a little bit. But even still, a listing in that, that, that you know, luxury or, you know, a high-end price range that's getting even one or two offers on the first weekend, typically at or near full price is still a pretty strong market, right? So it's just not what it necessarily was six months ago or 12 months ago. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I'm in agreement with that. You know, I think uh, over the last two years, uh, you know, people just got spoiled with a certain environment in which they could buy whatever they wanted and sell for whatever they want. And now we just have a reality coming back into the market. Have an adjustment period. Just an so adjustment I, so period. I, I, hey, I think that was a very politically correct way, Danny said. We have an adjustment period, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen. So, so, yeah, so the people that are thinking about selling, again, it comes down to why are you thinking about selling and time horizon and all of those sort of things too, right? There could be like, 
you know, there could be a scenario where someone's got a ton of equity and maybe they're a couple of years from retirement and it like it makes sense to like, you know, get more conservative and stabilize their investments and and, and pull that, you know, and, and, and do that now at a time where maybe markets are kind of nearing a high, um, you know, but but it's there's always there's always a reason. It's all situational. There's always a reason that people want to buy. There's always a reason that people want to sell. And it's when you have kind of the extremes of the market, like we've experienced over the last couple of years, where it brings other people into it. Yeah, I think that's well put. And, you know, a question that I always lead with is, you know, my job's to help you. It's never to talk you into doing anything. So just so I'm clear, was there any specific reason or purpose that you either wanted to buy or sell? So that way, you know, we can guide appropriately. So listen, guys, this has been uh, really educational. I think people are going to get a lot of value from it. I appreciate, again, you taking the time. So if people want to find you, if they want to ask you questions, if they want to talk to you about mortgages, things of that nature, where can they find you? What's the best place for them to get in contact with you? Well, we typically give out our cell phones for everybody, so um, they can they can call us directly on our phone. They can they can find us on Facebook, or um, we can also send out um, you know our email address. But my phone number is for anybody that has any questions, um, whether it's relating to buying, selling, refinancing, or just have some regular mortgage related questions that they want to go over, financial related questions. Uh, my number is nine five four five eight nine three six six one. That's my direct line. Um, and, uh, Ari, you want to go ahead and give your contact information out? Yeah, sure. Mine, mine's five, six, one, seven, one, four, four, two, one, eight. And, uh, geographically, although, you know, we kind of described at the beginning, we work together, we have everything. Danny's in Broward County. I'm in Palm beach County. Um, and, uh, you know, we, 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 we have offices in both places. We, we, we like the opportunity to, uh, to meet face to face, uh, more than we, uh, more than we did over the last couple of years too. It's nice to, uh, to actually get to talk to people. So. Yeah, our, um, you know, ari.tokar at benchmark.us, danny.tokar at benchmark.us, or uh, give us a call on our cell, and uh, we are both uh, happy to help. Perfect. And those are the kind of guys they are. You get their direct cell phones. That's not the case with, uh, you know, when when you're dealing with the, the partners in the organization. And I can attest to the fact that they'll pick up the phone whenever I call them. They pick up the phone immediately. So if you guys have enjoyed this episode of the podcast, be sure to smash the uh, subscribe button. If you think somebody else could get value from it, just go ahead and share it. And uh, we look forward to uh, connecting on the ep- next episode. I really appreciate you guys taking the time. Look forward to connecting soon. Okay. Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate Thanks, you having us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Aaron Novello podcast. Be sure to subscribe and follow Aaron on Instagram at Aaron Novello. Happy hunting.